Welcome back to True Crime Corner. I'm your host, Lisa Craven. This is episode 15. A federal trial began on June 12, 2019 in Peoria, Illinois. The judge addressed the jury and reminded them that the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty. The indictment brought by the government against the defendant is an accusation, nothing more. It is not proof of guilt or anything else. The defendant, therefore, starts with a clean slate. Second, the burden of proof is on the government until the very end of the case. The defendant has no burden to prove his or her innocence or to present any evidence or to testify. Since the defendant has the right to remain silent, the law prohibits you from arriving at your verdict by considering the defendant may not have testified. Third, the government must prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I will give you further instructions on this point later. In this case, the defendant is charged with three counts. Count 1. Kidnapping resulting in death. Count 2. False statement. Count 3. False statement. Two years ago, on a pleasant June day, Ying Yang Zhang, a 26-year-old student, was waiting for a bus on the University of Illinois campus. The defendant kidnapped her and took her to his apartment, where he raped her, brutally assaulted her, and took her life. He then attempted to cover up his crime. Her remains have never been found. On June 9, 2017, she was kidnapped, tortured, raped, and murdered. She had come to work and research at the University of Illinois campus, where she arrived in April of 2017. She had already obtained a college degree, an advanced degree, in China, and a professor at the University of Illinois provided her with an opportunity to come as a visiting scholar where she could continue her research in crop sciences studying photosynthesis in soybeans and corn. She hoped to get the doctorate degree and eventually return to China where she could teach. It was her first time in the United States, her first time outside of China. She said goodbye to her parents and her younger brother, as well as her longtime boyfriend and fiancé, who she planned to marry in the fall of 2017. She didn't know anyone at the university and received on-campus housing at first. By June, she was looking to get into an apartment of her own because it would be cheaper than paying for the housing on campus. She found an apartment on the north end of campus and put in an application. On June 9, 2017, she had a meeting with the marketing manager for the complex. Her only problem was she didn't have a car. She would need to rely on public transportation to get her from the south part of campus to the north. She had to work that morning and was planning to meet with Mr. Stone, the manager, that afternoon. She sent him a text at 1.30 p.m. letting him know that she was running late and she could meet him at 2.10 p.m. She hopped on the bus five minutes later and took it to the intersection of Springfield and Matthews Streets, where she got off in attempts to catch the 22 
limited bus, which would take her to the apartments that she had a meeting at. Unsure of the bus schedule and the layout of the area, she exited the bus on the north side of Springfield, and she saw that the bus that she was trying to catch was on the south side of the street. She realized she was probably going to miss her bus, so she began to chase after it, frantically waving her arms in hopes to get the driver's attention and have them stop. Instead, a black Saturn Astra passed her heading west. The bus kept going past her, despite her following it a block down the road and even turned down the street, chasing it for yet again another block. She wound up at the next bus stop at Clark and Goodwin Avenue, where she waited for the next bus. While she waited, that same car, the black Saturn Astra, pulled up alongside of her. It was impossible for the young scholar to have any idea of the dangers that were in front of her at that moment. She had been planning her dream, her future, her career. The man in the black car was also planning. He was also a student at the university, and he also had a goal in mind that day. In his own words, he led a double life. He was highly intelligent and attended the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was accepted into the University of Illinois doctorate program for physics. He met his wife, Michelle Zortman, while attending college in Stevens Point, and in 2013, the couple moved to Champaign, Illinois, in order for Brent Christensen, the defendant, to attend the university. By 2016, the defendant had developed an interest beyond his marriage and beyond his studies. It was a fascination of men acting alone for their own gratification, engaging in multiple murders over an extended period of time. These men are serial killers, and he had a particular interest in Ted Bundy. He enjoyed the movie American Psycho, a story where the main character leads a double life as a serial killer. He took his love and interest and combined it with his natural ability to learn. He began researching and planning how to kill someone. He joined forums online where he could discuss his love of bondage, kidnapping, and abductions. These forums are considered safe by the users because they are a fantasy and the abductions are allegedly consensual. In March of 2017, three months prior to the abduction of Ying Yang, he ordered a six-foot-long duffel bag from Amazon online. The more he spent on his new hobby, the more his academic and family life suffered. His grades went down and he was dropped from the doctorate program and forced to go for a master's degree as a result. In February of 2017, his wife also began dating other people and they eventually agreed to have what they called an open marriage, where she had a boyfriend and he had a girlfriend that they were both aware of and okay with. Brent began dating a woman by the name of Tara Bolas, who he met online on a dating site called OKCupid. Tara introduced Brent to the BDSM community. That is where individuals are interested in erotic bondage, disciple, dominance, and submission. Brent was the dominant and his girlfriend Tara was the submissive. In March of 2017, Brent met with a counselor at the university where he confessed that he and his wife were separated because he, she didn't like his drinking. 
That was the reason he said he wanted to speak with someone. He also noted on his paperwork that he had thoughts of harming others. When asked by the counselor what he meant, he said that he was always interested in bad guys and admitted to being a member of several forums online where he would discuss the serial killers he admired. He further divulged that Ted Bundy was very attractive and that he went on to kill people. He admitted that he had gone down the path of planning and abducting and killing someone. He even said he knew how he would do it and what type of victim he would choose. At the time of the meeting with the counselor, he said he didn't have one picked out at that moment and wasn't following anyone. He also said that these thoughts were something that he had in the past and claimed to no longer be thinking about them. And in fact, he was so over them that that was the reason he was even mentioning to the counselor to begin with. But that wasn't the truth. Far from it. The meeting was in March of 2017 with the counselor, and by April, he was texting his girlfriend Tara about buying restraints, a, a blindfold, and a ball gag for the mouth. By the end of May, he sent the following text to Tara. Fading into nothingness is a default for most people. You want to know what terrifies me? It's that. I will not fade away. I refuse. I don't care how I'll be remembered. Just that I am. Good, bad, revered, infamous, I don't care. Think back over the past 2,000 years. Who do you know? The people who pushed the limits and those who supported them. Fading into nothingness is not an option. I'd rather destroy humanity than let that happen. I know most would disagree. By May, he had the intent and plan. He just needed an opportunity. When his wife announced that she was leaving for the weekend of June 9th to travel to the Wisconsin Dells with her boyfriend, he knew he now had the time. That is when he ordered the large duffel bag from Amazon, six feet in length, on June 3rd, 2017. It was a super heavyweight cotton canvas duffel bag, two feet wide. UPS delivered it to his apartment three days later on June 6th. His wife would be leaving for her trip on June 9th, just three days later. In his forums online, he belonged to one called FetLife, an online forum for like-minded adults who are into the BDSM lifestyle to come together and talk about their interests and if they felt safe, they could meet up too. He talked with a woman online from that site about kidnapping her, binding her, gagging her, and placing her body into a large duffel bag where he could get her into the car, the back seat or the trunk, without anyone seeing her. On the early morning hours of June 9th, Brent's wife and her boyfriend left and headed off to the Wisconsin Dells for their vacation, leaving Brent alone in the couple's still-shared apartment. Brent left the apartment early and arrived at the grocery store around 8 a.m. wearing a black t-shirt and mirrored aviator sunglasses. He purchased a bottle of Admiral Nelson's spiced rum. He then drove around the campus drinking his rum while looking for a victim. At 9.30 a.m., he spotted a young graduate student walking to a nearby bus stop. He pulled up next to her and said that he was an undercover police officer and asked her if he could ask her a few questions. She answered with yes after she watched him pull a badge from out under his shirt. He asked her to get in the car and she said no, to which he responded with, Well, if you see anything suspicious, call the police. And drove off. Emily the young student did find something suspicious, that encounter with the strange man. She took his advice and she called the police to report what just happened. She didn't stop there. 
She also posted to Facebook warning others about a person driving around in a black car pretending to be a cop. Ying Yang failed to see that warning. After his first failed attempt at kidnapping, Brent wasn't giving up too easily. He still had the plan on his mind. In fact, he sent a text message to his girlfriend at Tara at noon saying, You don't do the anything casual thing, from breathing to fine dining to murder. By 1.30 p.m., Brent was back in his black Saturn and driving around campus again, hunting for an unsuspecting victim. At 1.57 p.m., he was seen driving west on Springfield, which is when he saw Ying Yang chasing after the bus. He drove down Springfield and circled back around, where he was now headed north on Wright Street, where he saw Ying Yang standing on the corner, alone, under a tree, at the corner of Goodwin and Clark Avenue. He went around the block, so when he approached Ying Yang, he was on the same side of the street as her, just as he did with Emily. Similar to his prior encounter, he also stopped the car, and you can see Ying Yang approach it. They engage in a brief, brief conversation, likely the same one he had with Emily, about him being an undercover officer. This time, Ying Yang gets into the car and closes the door behind her. His car heads north across University Avenue in the direction of the apartments that she had the appointment at. But they didn't stop. They kept going. Brent had an agenda too, and he wasn't about to let this one get away. At 2.28 p.m., just 20 minutes after she got into the car, her phone was disabled and no longer receiving signals. The small frame of the 5-foot-4-inch and 110-pound yin-yang was no match to Brent's 6-foot-tall 200 pounds. He was able to easily restrain her hands behind her back. He took her to his apartment where he brutally raped her. Blood evidence of this was found on his mattress. Her blood was found on the wall and the baseboards, appearing as if it had run down from the walls to the carpet, soaking through to the pad below and even to the floorboards underneath. She wasn't dead yet, so he choked her for about ten minutes. He said that she fought for her life before he finally carried her into the bathroom where he placed her body into the tub. At this point, he wasn't sure if she was still alive or not, so he struck her in the head with a Louisville slugger bat as hard as he could and broke her head open. As if this wasn't enough, he stabbed her in the neck. She grabbed for it. He ultimately won when he decapitated her. Now he was sure she was dead. It was still Friday, and he wasn't expecting his wife to return home until late Sunday, maybe even Monday. So that gave him three days to get rid of the body. He knew exactly what to do. This was all part of his plan. First, he decided to get rid of her phone, her clothes, and her backpack, which are all still missing to this date. He did keep the mattress with the bloodstains, along with the baseball bat that he split her head open with. He meticulously cleaned his mattress, the bat, and his car. He scrubbed the walls, the baseboards, and the carpet. He went to Walmart on Sunday and purchased a Swiffer and some Drano. He failed to clean behind the baseboard as well as under the carpet. His wife returned to the apartment on Sunday and didn't see any visible signs of murder in the home or in the car. Meanwhile, Ying Yang's professor and co-workers became concerned when she didn't return from her lunch break. All attempts to contact her by phone were unsuccessful. Her fiancé in China couldn't even reach her. By that Friday evening, her professor had reported her as a missing person to the University of Illinois Police Department. They learned that she had not made it to her 2.10 p.m. appointment to view the apartment. 
Cell phone pings obtained showed her last location was in the downtown Champaign area, and it pinged at about 2.28 p.m. Searches for her around that area came up with nothing. Police knew she was taking the bus to her appointment, so they decided to review the mass transit bus footage. They obtained hours worth of video. By Monday, June 12th, police had located a video showing Ying Yang getting into a black Saturn Astra at a bus stop on Clark and Goodwin Streets. Now the FBI had become involved because it appeared she was a victim of a possible abduction. The FBI publicized Ying Yang's disappearance and the information that they were looking for a black Saturn Astra. They obtained a list of all the 2008 Astras that were registered in the Champaign County. Astras are a rare car, so the list wasn't as extensive as if they were on the hunt for a Nissan Maxima. These cars were only made for a few years, so not many were in production. Plus, this car is about 9 years old at this time. There were 26 of them in the county, and out of that, only 18 of them had the four-door hatchback body style, similar to the one seen on surveillance video picking up Yang Yang. That same evening, the night of the 12th, federal agents began the task of interviewing every single owner of the list of Astras that they had. Agents arrived at the apartment of one of the owners, a man named Brent Christensen. He was there with his wife and allowed the FBI agents to enter his home and ask him questions. They informed him that they were there because of the missing student on campus. Brent calmly stated that he heard about the missing scholar and knew that the car that they were looking for resembled his. The agents asked him where he was between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. on Friday, June 9th. Initially, he said he couldn't remember where he was during that time, and the agents asked maybe he could check his text messages to see if that could help jog his memory. After looking at his messages, Brent said he got a text from his girlfriend Tara at about 1 p.m., and he didn't respond to her until around 4, so he thought maybe he was sleeping during that time. Ultimately, he told them that he stayed at his apartment all day Friday, sleeping and playing video games. Since they were already there, the agents asked if he minded if they looked around the apartment a little bit. He consented, and they were not able to immediately find any signs of the missing scholar there, so they asked if they could search his car. Again, he agreed, and agents came up empty-handed at the initial search. The agents eventually left to continue their quest of tracking down and interviewing every Astria owner in the county. After they left, Brent went on to Google and cleared his web browser history and put a request in for the maintenance department to come to his apartment and treat the grout in his bathroom for what he said was mold. Federal agents continued their search for Ying Yang throughout the day of June 13th and 14th. They kept going back to that footage of her getting into a mysterious black Saturn Astra and did their best to identify the license plate on the car, but the footage wasn't clear enough to do that. On the evening of the 14th, while examining the footage, an officer noticed a distinct defect with the car on the video. It appeared to have a chip in the hubcap on one of the tires, and the car had a sunroof. They recalled that the car Brent drove also had a sunroof, so at 5 p.m. on the 14th, another agent from the FBI returned to Brent's apartment to look at the Astra again. They noticed that the car had the same chip in the exact same spot of the hubcap, and also confirmed that the car did have a sunroof. With this new information, it was enough for them to draft up a search warrant for the car. Just before midnight on June 14th, federal agents, armed with a search warrant, woke up the sleeping couple and told them they had a search warrant for the vehicle. 
They also asked Brent if he could come down to the station with them for questioning. His wife stayed at the apartment where other agents interviewed her. This is where that they learned about the open marriage as well as the fact that Brent had a girlfriend named Tara. Brent was down at the station for questioning. His wife signed a consent form allowing agents to search their apartment. This is where they seized his computer, his cell phone, and mirrored style aviator sunglasses. While at the station, Brent continued to lie with his same story about being home all day playing video games. When confronted by agents that they had proof that he was on campus and driving, and in fact, they know that he picked up Ying Yang in his car, his demeanor changed. He took a long pause before he began to breathe heavy. His hands began to shake, and he claimed maybe he had his days mixed up, when in fact, he was out on Friday but spent all day Saturday at home playing video games. He admitted to picking her up. He knew he was caught. But instead of admitting to all he did, he simply said that he picked her up, but he wasn't aware that it was the same girl who was now missing. He said that she was distressed and spoke broken English. He claimed to have given her a short ride only a few blocks north, but when he made the wrong turn, she began to freak out, so she got out of the car. Agents continued to probe him about his new story, but he stuck to it and insisted that he only drove her a short distance before letting her out. He remained detained for most of the day of June 15th, while officers obtained another warrant to search his apartment, especially since he now admitted to having the young scholar in his car. Crime scene investigators began the daunting task of uncovering the hidden crimes that may have taken place. They found three reddish stains on the mattress, two smaller stains in the middle of the mattress, and a large stain at the end of the mattress near the wall. They swabbed the samples to test for DNA. They also found a baseball bat that didn't have any visible signs on it, but after spraying it with luminol, a chemical that will glow if it comes into contact with biological fluids such as blood or even some cleaning products, will create a reaction. Once the bat was sprayed, they found a stain that appeared to have been cleaned on the bat. Again, agents gathered swabs of the substance to later test for DNA. They then spoke with his girlfriend, Tara Bullis. During the interview with her, they asked if she would assist them with their investigation and would she be willing to wear a wire to record the conversations that she had with Brent. She said that she loved him but agreed to cooperate with agents and she wired up. On June 16th, they released Brent from their custody and over the next two weeks, he was under heavy FBI surveillance for 24 hours a day. Also, each time Brent and Tara met over the next two weeks, she wore a wire and their conversations were being secretly recorded. The following day on June 17th, Brent went back to the FBI office to speak with the agents. He learned that they found out about the six-foot duffel bag that he purchased and he wanted to clear things up. He gave them an explanation and said that he needed to buy it in order to transport a cat tree to his girlfriend Tara. Agents followed up with Tara about this and she said that she had no knowledge of any cat trees and she certainly didn't even know that Brent owned that duffel bag. While meeting with the agents, Brent also wanted to mention that he nicked his finger and bled in his car, so if they were to find any blood in the car, that's why. He again said the same story about picking up a girl but only driving her a few blocks before letting her out. Agents asked him to bring them to the location where he claimed to have let her out. He brought them to the familiar intersection of Goodwin and Clark, where Ying Yang had been abducted, 
but he was unable to specifically point out the spot where he let her out. Brent left the office on his own free will, all the while still under heavy surveillance as well as being recorded when in the presence of his girlfriend, Tara. The search for Ying Yang continued, and by this time, her father and fiancé had come from China to help look for her. The Chinese Student Association University assisted the family by organizing a visual, an event to obtain more information about the whereabouts of Ying Yang. They also held what is called a memorial walk. It was scheduled for June 29th, 20 days after Ying Yang was last seen on surveillance camera getting into the Black Saturn. The memorial walk began at Crandon Center on campus and continued to the very location where Ying Yang had been abducted. A concert was also being held at the park after the walk. Brent was aware of the vigil. In fact, he was aware of all the publicity this case was getting based on his internet searches. It had gained international attention and was also heavily covered by the media who was reporting the latest updates as they received them. Brent decided he was going to attend the vigil and also ordered his submissive girlfriend, Tara, to attend. Luckily for him, he wasn't even aware that she was already wearing a wire and recording all of their private conversations. He explained to Tara the motive for him attending the vigil was to see how many people were there because they were there for him. This was his work, he thought. Over the next few hours while attending the vigil, Brent went into graphic details about how he kidnapped and murdered young Ying Yang. He described how hard she fought for her life and how he cut her clothes off and just started doing stuff to her. He admits he became bored and thought there was nothing to her and he didn't even orgasm. He went into details about how he strangled her and split her head open with the bat, how he stabbed her and decapitated her. He was aware that the authorities had confiscated the bat by this time and he made a comment to Tara that they have the bat that he struck her in the head with, but that Ying Ying was gone and she is never going to be found. He said it proudly like he was bragging. He went on to note that not just the police had been involved looking for her, but the FBI was too, and none of them had found any evidence of her body. So he made the comment to Tara that, I'm apparently very good at this. The family won't leave until she is found. They're going to leave empty-handed because they will never find her. She's gone forever. Keep in mind that Brent is only on trial for the kidnapping of Ying Yang, resulting in her death, and for his false statements, no other crimes. But in his conversations with Tara about the murder, he also bragged about killing other victims. In fact, he told his girlfriend that he had been killing since he was 19 years old, and that Ying Yang was his 13th victim. He claimed that Ying Yang was the only person to produce any evidence linking back to him and that he didn't even know the names of his other victims. He stated killing Ying Yang would be his legacy and that the last serial killer at his level was Ted Bundy. The FBI at this time has not identified any victims or any evidence linking Brent to any other murders. They did, however, have enough probable cause to arrest Brent and on June 30th, 2017, they did just that. They also executed another search warrant at his apartment. They brought in cadaver-detecting dogs that are trained to pick up the scent of a deceased body. The dogs hit on the bathroom where Brent had previously bragged to Tara is where he murdered Ying Yang. They applied luminol to the surfaces of the apartment to see if they could detect the presence of blood, biological fluids, or cleaning products. 
When a black light is shined on the luminol-covered surfaces, if any of the fluids are present, they will glow. Evidence was produced that showed handprints on the drywall and carpet up against and underneath the bed. It appeared that the area had been heavily cleaned. They pulled up the carpet underneath the bed and found a reddish stain on the padding that even soaked through to the floorboards below. The stain tested positive for blood and they took swabs to send off for DNA testing. They further uncovered more stains on the tack strip of the carpeting and along the baseboard and the drywall. All were swabbed and sent off for testing. DNA tested against the known DNA of the missing scholar Ying Ying produced a positive match for the swab taken from the baseball bat, the carpet, the mattress, the tack strip, the baseboard, and the drywall. Now the defense presented their opening statement. Brent Christensen is responsible for the death of Ying Yang. Brent Christensen killed Ying Yang. And nothing that we do during the phase of this trial is intended or will be meant to sidestep or deny that Brent is responsible for the death of Miss Zhang. So why are we having a trial? The answer to that is Brent Christensen is on trial for his life in this case. There are two phases of this trial. The first is to find him guilty or not of the crimes that he is being accused. The second phase, if necessary, is the sentencing. The defense listed all of the things that the government was presenting in their case as evidence that they found were questionable. They acknowledged that the recorded conversation between Tara and Brent at the memorial walk was obtained, but that Brent was heavily intoxicated throughout the day. You can hear him slur his speech. They also argue for the jury to keep an open mind and come to their conclusion reasonably. They mention the claim that Brent made about killing 12 other victims is nothing but lies, and even the FBI followed through with an aggressive investigation that found nothing. They compared multi-state unsolved crimes in attempts to link Brent with no such luck. They explained that Brent was in a downward spiral in his life, this is important to keep in mind because they need to understand the frame of mind he was in on the evening of the memorial walk and the statements that he made to Tara were not to fully be believed. They address his visit with the campus counselors in March of 2017, but state the reason for his visit was to discuss his alcohol and substance abuse problems. This was the result of a conversation he had with his wife, Michelle, about her wanting a divorce because his drinking was causing serious relationship issues. The failing marriage was driving his depression and sleep issues that only manifested when he was failing out of school. He was chronically depressed and stayed home playing video games. The defense also stated that Brent began to experiment with prescription medications and mixing them with alcohol. He had feelings of self-harm in addition to feelings of wanting to harm someone else. Brent was born in 1989 in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. He lived with his mom, dad, older brother, and a younger sister. He was married to his wife, Michelle, by 2011. In the spring of 2013, he graduated the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a double major in both math and physics. He was admitted to one of the most prestigious doctoral programs in the country at the University of Illinois. By the fall of 2013, Brent and his wife moved from Madison to Champaign, Illinois, 
where Brent successfully completed three semesters of the doctoral program and his wife Michelle worked full-time as a loan officer at a bank. By the fourth semester and thereafter, things began falling apart for Brent. His alcohol consumption increased significantly. He began having problems sleeping and soon his depression surfaced. He began to miss more classes. His academic professors took notice and they advised him to seek counseling at the school. Maybe they could address some of the stress he was under. By the summer of 2016, he was dropped from the doctoral program and moved to the master's degree program. That's where everything began going downhill, and by the fall of 2016, he had hit rock bottom. He got straight F's in all of his classes. Michelle, his wife, was also very unhappy with the marriage by this time. Brent had began drinking out of control and was chronically depressed. He couldn't sleep, which rendered him dysfunctional. As a result, Michelle began seeing another man, a friend she met at work. She told Brent in March of 2017 that she wanted a divorce. This would be the final straw for Brent. Michelle was all he had. They didn't have any friends in the area and didn't keep in contact with the friends they had in Wisconsin. Brent was not close with his family, so when his wife said she wanted to leave him, this left his already fragile mental state open for a complete and total shutdown. Two days after Michelle told him she wanted a divorce is when Brent finally sought counseling. He said he went there for his alcohol and substance abuse issues and even said on the intake form the reason for his visit was, alcohol and drugs are ruining my life. He told the counselor in the interview that was recorded because she herself was a doctoral student and the session was being documented for her studies, that he had feelings of self-harm as well as feelings of wanting to harm others. He confesses that he can't stop drinking and has even begun mixing Vicodin, a prescription painkiller, with his alcohol. He knew his wife didn't approve of his drinking and that it was pushing her away. He said he was able to convince his wife to stay with him because he offered her an open marriage where they could both see other people, but he noticed how close Michelle was getting with her new boyfriend from work, and he felt threatened. She was the only person in his life at this time. And the counselor even acknowledged that Brent was isolating himself on campus and was failing. The counselor asked Brent about his response to the form where he indicated he wanted to harm himself or others. She asked him if these were thoughts or if he had actually made plans. His response was, Well, I've made plans. They're pretty far along. When asked if he had made purchases for these plans, his answer was, Yeah. Probed about if he had anyone in specific that he wanted to harm, he responded with, Not really, but types of people, yes. At the conclusion of this session, they set up another one nine days later. He attended it and was given a recommendation for a local treatment facility that Brent could go to as a one-stop shop of sorts to treat his alcohol and substance abuse problems as well as seek counseling. Brent never went to the facility. Instead, he met a woman named Tara Bullis. The two met on a dating website where he very openly put his reasons for seeking a relationship. He said on his profile that he wanted the company of another woman because his wife was in a relationship and he was desperate for companionship. Tara responded to his post and said, quote, I don't want to sound like a creeper, but you look gorgeous, end quote. 
The two of them met shortly after, and Tara introduced Brent to the world of BDSM. In his already distorted mental state, he now has a new hobby, a fetish of sorts, where role-playing, power, and submission, pain, and violence, and adult conceptual sex was involved. Within weeks of meeting Tara, his drinking continues to increase, and text messages between the two reveal his depression and sense of hopelessness is also increasing. He says such things as, My life is falling apart. After he learned that his wife was going out of town for the weekend vacation with her boyfriend, he became sad to learn that they will be staying at the very same resort that the two of them did in 2011 when they had their honeymoon. On June 9th, after his wife left the apartment to spend the weekend with her boyfriend, Brent texts Tara and got a response that she was busy having sex with another man and can't be availed available to him to talk or text. This leaves him alone. He had hit a new low. Now it's 7.30 in the morning, and with nothing to lose, he headed to the store to buy some liquor. He got the largest and cheapest bottle of rum he could find and spent the morning and afternoon drinking it. By 2 p.m., he does the unthinkable. He picks up Ying Yang at the corner of Clark and Goodwin and takes her back to his apartment where he kills her. The FBI had already begun making a case against Brent three days after Ying Yang's disappearance, and by five days they had search warrants for his car and apartment. Over the next two years, the FBI went through all of Brent's stuff and attempts to link him to murders or other cold cases. None of this happened. He couldn't successfully be linked to any other murders or missing persons except for Ying Yang, so his claims about 12 other victims are just that, claims. When Michelle took the stand... She confirmed that her and Brent were super close. In fact, she was with him for all of her adult life, and they were a very close couple. She also knew that her trip to the Wisconsin Dells with her boyfriend upset him because they had honeymooned there when they first wed. She said that despite of all this, she still regularly keeps in touch with Brent. She also said that when she saw the sizable blood stain on their mattress that was there and later tested positive for Ying Yang's blood, Brent told her that it was from a nosebleed that he had. She also noticed that he cleaned out the inside of his car twice, which was odd. The defense concluded by saying, quote, It's Brent's fault. It's nobody's fault but his. The government wants to take his life. End quote. They further reiterated the downward spiral and weak emotional state that Brent was in at the time. They even blamed Tara for introducing him to a life of sex and violence and claimed that once she put that into his head, there was no turning back. The government offered their closing by saying that they had easily met the burden of proof to convict Brent. His marital and alcohol problems were no doubt present, but that didn't put the dark thoughts into his head. They were already there. He had already spent months researching serial killers like Ted Bundy, and looked into various methods for kidnapping and murdering a victim. This was always about murder. This was not an impulsive act. It took jurors two hours to debate and return a guilty verdict. Brent was not moved. His facial expressions never shifted from the blank icy stare he had for the entire trial. The second phase of the trial, the sentencing, will begin on July 8, 2019. The state of Illinois had abolished the death penalty in 2011, and Brent would be the first case presented if the jury recommends the death penalty. The trial will be similar to the one 
where the first one, where there will be opening arguments and evidence presented before the jury is asked for their recommendation. He will be facing life in prison or the death penalty. In a motion filed the following day after the verdict, the defense claimed that an offer was made to the feds just months after his arrest. They state that Brent offered to plead guilty and reveal where the remains of Ying Yang were in exchange for life in prison. The U.S. Attorney's Office apparently declined that offer. In a statement made by the family, they said the following, quote, We were made aware of the defense claim during the progress of this case. We asked that the prosecution obtain truthful information about the whereabouts of remains, that the remains be located, and that we be allowed to return them to China. We were told that the response to our request by the defendant was that it was not possible to verify any claim that the defendant would make. There was no promise that Ying Yang's remains would be discovered. We were very leery of the defendant's claims because he had lied so many times in the past. Nothing has ever stopped the defendant from pleading guilty, yet the family sat through a trial where the horrible details of Ying Yang's death had been publicly disclosed. End quote. Ying Yang's family has repeatedly said that they believe the death penalty would be just in this case. This will conclude the episode. Thank you for listening.